Well, that was fun. Have you ever been in a season of life where something or perhaps even everything kind of just seems like it's in the air? Like you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how to navigate what's happening next. Maybe you're graduating uh, from elementary to go to middle school or middle school to high school. Graduating high school, going to college, graduating college, and now you've got an entire life in front of you. Perhaps you've just been laid off from work. You don't know what's going to happen next. Or you're going into a second career, and it's exciting, but a little scary. Or perhaps it's the death of a loved one, whether it's expected or not expected, but still, the world is turned upside down. Maybe you don't even know how bills are going to be paid this month or really just any circumstance where it feels like you have no control. No matter how well or how poorly we kind of navigate these situations, which we all have, we're left asking with a pretty simple question, but rather universal. What happens next? What am I going to do? Where is this going to go? Am I going to make the right decision? How do I know I made the right decision? Is it all going to work out? What happens next? The disciples were asking this very question in Acts chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be at today. And so you can go ahead and load up or turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to go through the entire chapter today and navigate this story. See, Jesus, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he spent time with his followers, 40 days And he says during this time that I'm going to ascend soon. I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm not going to be around anymore. And then he tells them in Acts 1-4, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he has promised. And so Jesus ascends, he is physically gone, and the disciples wait in Jerusalem. And they're asking themselves, what happens next? Now, we're going to do another activity throughout the entire sermon today that kids do in the back. So, kids, you're going to be familiar with this. As we go through this story, we're going to ask the question, what happens next? And I want you to give me an answer. We're going to do one, two, or three. Just put up whichever one you think it is, and it's just multiple choice, super simple, and then we'll kind of move through the story that way, okay? So, first up, they're waiting in Jerusalem. Jesus has ascended. They're waiting in Jerusalem. What happens next? Do the disciples scatter? One, do they scatter? Is it the birth of the church? Or three, the very first missionary trips? Now, we, we kind of already gave it away, but which one do you think it is? One, two, or three? Let me see your hands. Okay, it is two, birth of the church. <laughs> okay, so today is Pentecost. Pentecost is the birth of the church, and this is a celebration that churches around the entire world right now are celebrating Pentecost, the birthday of the church. So let's set the stage for our story in Acts chapter 2 of the church's birth. Jesus' followers are chilling in Jerusalem for about 10 days after Jesus ascends. They're just hanging out, and on the day of Pentecost, because it was Pentecost for them as well, there's about 120 of them and they're hanging out, celebrating this holiday, Pentecost. Now, it was a little different for them than it is for us today, okay? We're celebrating the birthday of the church. For them, they were celebrating something called the Festival of Weeks. Now, this is one of the seven major Jewish holidays, and one of the three major feasts that Jews from all around the world were coming to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage 
to celebrate and to gather together. And they celebrated this festival of weeks. And it really had two goals in mind. One, it was a first fruit celebration of the harvest. So the barley just came in and they were celebrating that as they were about to plant more. And then two, it was the celebration of God's law being given to Israel on Mount Sinai with Moses. We have the Ten Commandments and the tablets. And so really what they're celebrating, even at Pentecost then, they're celebrating the birth of the Israel nation as it is kind of known throughout history with their customs and their traditions and the law and everything they kind of associate themselves with. And so a ton of people at this time are in Jerusalem coming from all around. All the Jews from the different parts of the world were coming together. And so Jerusalem is packed, okay? Merchants are coming in from all over because they know there's going to be money to be spent. It's a party for this entire city And so people are just having a great time eating, drinking, having a great time together. And so the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they are gathered together for this event. And it's early in the morning, about 9 a.m. And they're eating and they're talking. And during this festival, it was pretty customary for people to gather together and to give thanks for what's going on because it was a harvest celebration, kind of the way we do Thanksgiving today. And so they're giving thanks. And then also they're talking about scripture. That's just what they did when they gathered together. What's what the Jews did. And so they're talking about Scripture. And I can guarantee they're also talking about the ascension because it was 10 days ago. Jesus just ascended, and they're all together still in Jerusalem talking about all of this and asking themselves, what happens next? What's going to happen next? And so I ask you guys, for our story, what happens next? They're in the upper room. They're celebrating Pentecost. One, do the authorities break them up? Two, does Peter go out to the street? Or three, does the gift that Jesus promised comes? What do you guys think? One, two, or three? The gift Jesus promised, it comes. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages, and the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Remember what I said about Pentecost being a celebration of Moses getting the commandments, of the law coming to Israel? It was basically the birth of Israel as a nation. Well, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses says, never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, and the Lord spoke to you from the heart of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but didn't see his form. There was only a voice, and he proclaimed his covenant. Moses is talking about that moment, the birth of their nation. Here we see the church is born in much the same way. The Lord descended upon Mount Sinai amidst fire, as it says in Exodus, and his covenant is given to Israel through Moses and the law. Now, at this moment, the Holy Spirit descends in tongues of flame, and his covenant is imprinted on the heart of every single believer there, where his love and his presence still resides within the heart of every believer today. And the evidence in this case is speaking in other languages that they did not know. So we've got over a hundred people worshiping God miraculously. So what happens next? One, a bunch of people hear them and accuse them of being drunk, that they're partying too hard. 
Or two, God speaks to the disciples audibly and they hear his voice. Or three, they worshiped all day in this manner in the upper room. What do you guys think? One, two, or three? Throw it up. All right, it's one. A bunch of people heard them out on the streets and accused them of being drunk, thinking that they were partying Pentecost a little too hard. When they, the people on the street, heard the loud noise, everyone came running. They heard the noise of the Holy Spirit coming, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by all the believers. These 120 people come rushing out of this building all at once, worshiping God in multiple languages, and everyone around them, all these Jews from all around the world are just confused because they're speaking all their different languages. And we're talking about, at a minimum, 15 different languages that are recorded within Scripture. At minimum, all being spoken from around the world. And we hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. And the people stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. And so Peter, he steps forward. He's the leader of the church at this time. And he steps forward and says, we're not drunk. That's not what it is. It's only 9 a.m. We're not drunk. But I'll tell you why we're acting this way. And then Peter preaches. He preaches a message from the Lord, and he is empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach this message, showing us that God doesn't gift us because of perfection, because Peter just denied 50 days earlier Jesus. Peter was far from perfect. We are far from perfect, but God doesn't show up because we're perfect God shows up for those who turn their eyes to Jesus and wait. That's when God shows up. And so Peter preaches this first sermon on the birthday of the church. And let me tell you, it's a doozy. It's one of the best sermons that you will ever read. And so I encourage you, go through this sermon this week. We're going to step through it rather quickly for time's sake And I'm going to give you kind of the three main aspects, the three main points of his sermon so that we can understand exactly what Peter is saying because he presents the gospel to all the Jews in Jerusalem very plainly and clearly. First, Peter declares that the prophets of Scripture predicted that this day would come, the day that something new will be born. He says, in the last days, which is now, when you see in the last days, it means from when Jesus ascended until he comes again. And so we are living in the last days. So in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And down in 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter declares that this day something new is born. And he then proclaims that Jesus as ordained by God, is the catalyst for this change. Jesus is the reason why this change has happened. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you 
speaking to the entire city. You nailed him to a cross and you killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. And then he hits them with a hard and necessary truth for all of these Jews, saying that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah, the Savior that you have been waiting upon, is Jesus, who brings the world into a new relationship with God. The thing that's being born now is this new relationship, a relationship that's no longer about the law, no longer about rituals or the works that you do, how good you are. It is a relationship based on God being with us, His presence being around us through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In 32, he says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of the highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see here today. And then we see in verse 36, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter gives them the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling them the truth about Jesus who was just killed recently but rose from the dead and gave new life. And so what happens next? He presents the gospel to the people in Jerusalem. So what happens next? Do the people listen and believe? Do they make fun of Peter? Or does Peter faint because he's just so excited? What do you guys think? One, two, or three? The people listen and believe. It says in verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? These people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they believe and they want to know what happens next. I believe now what happens next. And the truth is we want to know the same thing. You may be sitting there thinking, yeah, I believe. I believe that Jesus is God, that he died for me so that I can have a life-changing relationship with him. I do believe, but what happens next? Or maybe you followed Jesus for a really long time, but your life has become the same day in and day out, doing the same disciplines, the same prayers, the same thoughts. And you're thinking, is this it? Is there anything else for me? What happens next? Or maybe you're feeling this pull to do more, to serve, to love people better, to perhaps even a pull to serve in ministry in some way, maybe even full time, and and you're just trying to figure out what happens next. Or perhaps you're feeling the weight of your sin perhaps before you even knew Jesus, or even as you've been in relationship with Him. And that weight is just pulling you down into a hole, and you don't know how to get out of it. And you're wondering, what happens next? What am I to do? Or perhaps you're changed by the grace of God, and you are a completely new individual, changed by the Holy Spirit, your, your old life, before Jesus is dead, and you are now new. 
but you cannot find it within your own heart to forgive yourself for that individual who you used to be, and you don't know how to move forward. And you're asking, what happens next? Do I carry this forever? Or perhaps due to grief, grief over a loss or circumstances out of your control, and your grief is overwhelming you right now. And all the things that you thought were true about God just don't seem to make sense anymore. And you're asking, what happens next? Peter answers, for them on Pentecost and for all of us, he says in verse 38, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So what happens next? Whatever else comes afterward, the very first step is repentance. Repentance is turning away from all that prevents us from honoring God. That's what repentance is. Very simply put, it's turning away from all that prevents us from honoring God. Now, we have a tendency to think of repentance as, as this thing that we only do when we've done some terrible sin, some terrible action. We have chosen to rebel against God or chosen to step into disobedience in some way, and we must repent of it, and we turn away from it. And that's one aspect, but it's not all of repentance. It's just one aspect of repentance. There's, there's really two things, because repentance literally means a change of mind, if we look at the original language, it's a change of mind. It's a shift in how we think and the way that we act. And so repentance has two aspects to it. One is that way where we willfully sin. We choose to step into doing something wrong, and we must repent of that and say, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to turn away from that, asking God for forgiveness, asking others for forgiveness for the way that we have wronged them because we have stepped into that. And that's one aspect. And then the second aspect, though, is that we repent of those times in which we just forget to include God in our lives. We're not intentionally stepping into doing something wrong, but we've left God out of it. Or we've lived our life imperfectly. As a parent, I parent my children the best that I can, and sometimes I do things rather well. And yet, it's still imperfect. And later, I think, I should have said this or that because we did it imperfectly. We still repent of that. We turn our gaze to God. We change our mind from one way that had no God in it to a way that has God in it. Repentance is all of this. It's not just those moments in which we've willfully sinned and stepped into it. It's turning and changing our mind to the Lord in all things that we do, whether good or bad, because we want to be more like Him. And so this aspect is not assigning blame or guilt, and there's no shame in it. It is not to make us feel like we're failures. Repentance is just turning our mind to the Lord because we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, a world that is tainted by generations of rebellion. 
It is not the way that God initially created it. If it was, it would be absolutely perfect, and we wouldn't have to worry about this, but it's not. And so we have to deal with a reality that continuously pulls our attention away from God. So whether it's our own doing and we choose to step into doing something wrong or we're the victim of circumstance or a victim of oppression or we've just simply forgot to include God within our lives, we repent. We change our minds away from a way of thinking that has nothing to do with the Lord to one that does. And we trust Him and have faith that He will be there in the hard times with us. So as we begin to think about repentance just a little bit differently, something else really stands out. Repentance is a celebration. We should not feel guilty. We should not feel shame when we repent because it is simply a change of thinking, our change of mind toward God, and that should be celebrated. So when we step into repentance, it shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be full of that shame and the guilt that too often we associate with repentance, of confessing our sin and turning away from it. That's not what it is. We celebrate it because we understand it's just pointing us toward God. And when we experience repentance, it becomes joyful because it just means that we're growing. It means that we're changing our minds toward the Lord. And repentance then becomes a normal and happy occasion in the lives of every single follower of Jesus. And it's modeled by those around us. If we have a community of believers who are repenting in this way, it's modeled all around us and leads to joy and celebration in our community. It's modeled by parents being able to repent before their children. It's modeled by small groups who gather together and are able to confess sin and repent of it together. It's modeled in marriages as we bring one another closer to Jesus by repenting of our sins. And as many of you know, marriage is riddled with repentance. This past weekend, I was at a bachelor party for a really good friend of mine, and we were in the North Woods just camping out, and we were around the campfire one night, and we were praying for the groom and affirming that us committing to be a part of this wedding, we were saying, we're going to stand with you through this marriage. We're going to pray for you. We commit to pray for you, to answer the phone to be there when times are hard and when they're full of joy and celebration, we will be there for you. And that we're going to hold you accountable to be the man that you are called to be by God and to be the husband that you're supposed to be. And so we are just praying for him, affirming these things. And then we talked because all of us, other than the groom, were already married. And we talked about our marriages and our relationship with our wives. And we talked about our experiences of repentance within our marriages, how we have failed so often, and we had to ask forgiveness to our wives and repent of our sin, or repent of just not doing things as well as we should have. And you know what that time was? It was joyful, because what we were doing is we were walking through these times that, yeah, we've messed up, but now life is so much better because we repented. 
It was a time of celebration. Every single one of us left that evening encouraged because of the repentance that we had talked about. Repentance is joyful. Repentance is a celebration. So let's enjoy Pentecost today, the birthday of the church, and celebrate the joy that's found within repentance because that is our next step into whatever happens next. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you do. Lord, you are good and you are holy, and we're not. And yet you offer us a way to become more like you consistently, and that way is repentance. We understand that we're not perfect, and we understand that we do mess up, or we fail, or we just simply forget to include you in our lives. And Father, I ask right now that you give us the courage to be able to step into repentance every single day of our lives so that we may turn our gaze to you and look to you for our answers because you're the one who redeems. You're the one who gives us grace. You're the one who makes this life worth living. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of repentance that you have offered through him. Let us honor you today as we continue to worship and celebrate the birth of the church together. Let us celebrate all things that you have given us, all the gifts that you have poured upon your people. In your holy name, amen.